Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll take a look at President Biden's $1.5 trillion funding request for discretionary spending in fiscal year 2022. This is the portion of the budget that flows through the annual appropriations process and accounts for about one third of federal spending. We'll discuss how Biden's request compares with current funding on discretionary programs and how it fits with his previous released plans on COVID relief, economic recovery, and infrastructure. Joining me for this segment will be Concord's policy director, Tori Gorman, and our new colleague, Steve Robinson, a veteran of many Capitol Hill positions and who is now, I'm happy to say, chief economist of the Concord Coalition. Then in our second segment, I'll be joined by Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute. Richard and I will discuss a new paper he's written for a joint Global Aging Institute Concord Coalition project called The Shape of Things to Come. The project explores the fiscal, economic, social, and geopolitical implications of aging in America. In this paper, the fifth in the series, we'll look at the macro challenges of population aging. We'll be right back with the program after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Tori and Steve, welcome to the program. And Steve, welcome to the Concord Coalition. Thank you. Hey, Bob. Tori is a regular contributor, uh, but this is the first appearance for Steve. So let me just fill in a little background for our listeners. Uh, over the past uh, 20 years or so or more, Steve has had senior policy and analytical roles with the Senate and House Budget Committees, the Senate Finance Committee, the Joint Economic Committee, and most recently with the Social Security Administration. So that's a wealth of background, and we're happy to have you on board, and not a minute too soon, because trillion-dollar proposals seem to be popping out left and right. Welcome aboard, Steve. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, let's get started. Don't speak too soon, but (laughs) (laughs) let's get started by talking about the latest of the big proposals, which is President Biden's fiscal year 2022 discretionary spending request. Tori, you've been looking at that uh, in depth. Um, What are some of the observations that you'd make about it? Well, Well, uh, let let me back up for a second and just ask you first, what is discretionary spending? Uh, just define a term of art term and about how much of this federal budget does it take up? Sure. So uh, budget wonks, we tend to approach the budget from a perspective of looking at two different types of spending. There is discretionary spending. That is the amount of the pot of money 
that appropriators uh, reauthorize every year. They spend a year looking at uh, uh, different programs. Uh, and then at the end of the year, they authorize uh, spending for the next fiscal year in these programs. So it's what we call one year money. Uh, and that part of the budget, at least at this point, constitutes about a third of the federal budget. The other pot of money is mandatory spending. And those are programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, spending that occurs automatically year after year unless lawmakers in Washington, D.C. make changes to those programs. And mandatory side of the budget is about two-thirds of what we spend every year. So the discretionary side are sort of like the, the operating costs of the, of the federal agencies, um, the, 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 the staff, the salaries and things like that that we pay uh, to people who work, for example, at the Social Security Administration. But the money that we spend, for example, Social Security retirement benefits or Social Security disability benefits, that part of Social Security is considered mandatory spending. All right. Well, uh, we're we're talking about the discretionary part of the budget. So you've described this as a as a skinny budget at uh, 1.5 trillion. It doesn't seem all that skinny. So what's missing? So when the president proposes an annual budget, there are usually three major components to a budget: the proposals for discretionary spending, proposals for uh, the revenue piece uh, of the budget, but then also mandatory spending. And it usually includes projections for the upcoming budget year, as well as looking nine years into the future. The president's budget is normally due uh, the first Monday in February of every year. It's also common, however, for a president in his inaugural year to delay publication of his budget as he gets his administration staffed up. For example, presidents going back to, to Bill Clinton did not initially submit a full budget Rather, they submitted a skinny budget to Congress, and then a few weeks later, once they had a majority of their cabinet uh, in place, would propose and send to Congress a full budget. What President Biden has done is uh, build upon that, that, that tradition in submitting a skinny budget. He took it one step further, however, and instead of producing just a uh, you know, a couple of, of, of tables uh, that would describe the, the budget in full that's coming uh, down the pike. He just proposed uh, his discretionary budget for fiscal 22 alone. So it's like the skinniest of skinny budgets. In prior years, presidents would submit a whole bunch of tables that looked at, you know, the upcoming fiscal year and projections for nine years going forward. And from those tables, you could sort of discern where the administration was going in terms of revenue policies, mandatory spending policies, discretionary spending, et cetera. You just didn't have all of the, 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 the purple prose, if you will, that, that went along explaining all the different policy changes. In the present example, all we've got from President Biden is just a description of his plan for discretionary spending for fiscal 22. So it's a third of the budget and just for the upcoming fiscal year. We don't have proposals for revenue, policies for mandatory policies. And we're also missing projections of what we think these policies will do to shape the budgetary contours in, you know, years from eight, two, three, four or five, you know, nine years from now. Well, given uh, that, that limitation, nevertheless, are there spending priorities, policy priorities reflected in the uh, president's request for fiscal year 2022? Sure. 
I mean, I, I think the, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom on Capitol Hill is that a president's budget is typically dead on arrival, but that still, that, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have importance. You, you will find that a president's budget often reflects the, the, the values and the priorities of the administration. And when you take a look at President Biden's fiscal 22 discretionary budget, you can see that several common themes run through it. For example, the Biden has, has made climate change a number one priority. And in each and every agency and, and major cabinet department in his discretionary budget, uh, they've significantly increased or created brand new programs that have to deal with climate change. Second, another priority of the administration is correcting underinvestment in traditionally underserved communities. So there's a huge investment in uh, sort of social safety net programs and uh, investment programs that would benefit uh, previously un underserved communities, low-income neighborhoods, um, for example, schools, K through 12 schools that are in high poverty neighborhoods, um, increases in uh, food security proposals. Um, it, it literally just runs the gamut, but the, the, the Biden administration is working, is promised to work really hard on ameliorating the, the racial disparities that have existed in federal investments. And the, the Biden budget for 22 reflects those priorities. Fair to say that it's heavier on non-defense spending than defense spending. That is correct. And when that's one of the unusual aspects of this budget is that for the first time in a very long time, when you look at base spending, uh, regular discretionary appropriations, uh, sort of ignoring the, the emergency side of things, non-defense discretionary spending will actually exceed uh, defense spending, which is a, a remarkable turn of events. Well, uh, Steve, we're going to get to you in a second. First, let me just remind our listeners, this is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. We're discussing the latest budget initiatives of the Biden administration. And let's uh, turn back a little bit to the American Jobs Plan, sometimes called the Infrastructure Plan, that the president sent out earlier, and it's uh, it's beginning to get some reaction on Capitol Hill. And I know Steve, you've been looking uh, deeply into that budget. D does it seem that the is there any way to tell whether the discretionary numbers for one year that Tory was just talking about do they reflect? the uh, earlier proposals that the president has made on uh, uh, infrastructure spending? In other words, are they incorporated into that? Or is there any way we, we can know that? I, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, back, I guess, was it two weeks ago now, the, the president offered, he said, was a roughly $3 trillion infrastructure proposal. And it runs the gamut of highways and bridges and airports to, you know, semiconductor manufacturing, broadband internet, and all the way to long-term care for the elderly. So, you know, it's somewhat suspect in terms of fitting within the traditional definition of infrastructure. But what's really not clear is that that $2.3 trillion number is over a period of time. It, it could be 
some of the some of the proposals are described over eight years or ten years, could be more, could be less. It's not entirely clear. You know, so we're comparing what Tori was just describing was the the annual FY22 appropriations. You know, it could very well be that some of that 2.3 trillion is included in the appropriation bill, but we don't yet have enough details. I mean, there are a lot of common themes as Tori was just describing, you know, um, addressing climate change, addressing investment in distressed you know, communities. Clearly those themes carry over into both, both proposals, but we don't yet have enough details to know, you know, whether the president views these as separate packages and he intends to move the infrastructure proposal separately and prior to uh, Congress doing the appropriations, which will actually not take effect until next October. This has been uh, a very unusual uh, infrastructure bill in that the definition of infrastructure has been broadened considerably. Could you discuss just a, a little bit of the range of, I mean, what, what, what is, when Congress considers an infrastructure bill, what does it normally consider? And um, what's in, not everything, but I mean, just, you know, what's the, 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 the range in this one? Well, I mean, interestingly, the, the Commerce Department just put out a new uh, report, and I guess it came out last year in 2020. And they define infrastructure as three categories. They say there's basic infrastructure, there's digital infrastructure, and there's social infrastructure. And they describe those basic as what you would assume it's you know, your air, land, and water transportation. So that's highways and airports and seaports. Uh, then you also have, you know, your utilities, power, sewer, and water. So gas, electric, you know, essentially the infrastructure of, of bridge, of, um, what am I trying to say? Your, your infrastructure of um, power lines and water pipes that are buried under the ground. So it's, it's those sort of, you know, bricks and mortar, actual physical structures. Then, of course, you have the digital infrastructure, which is, of course, you know, that's what people think about today as being, you know, the internet and, and cell phone service, but basically it includes radio, telephone, and television transmission. So it's all the wires and, you know, cell towers and, and satellite dishes and the things that, you know, give us, allow us to communicate. Uh, and then finally, you have social infrastructure, which is your hospitals and your prisons and your schools. Um, that's you know the physical buildings and the equipment and the facilities that allow us to provide you know health and education and criminal justice uh, services. So you know that's what you know is sort of the traditional official recognized definition of, of infrastructure. But what the president has essentially proposed is really two things. One is to expand the definition of infrastructure from what we sort of think of as the physical structures to things that are more intangible. You might refer to it as human infrastructure. You know, what is, you know, the, the, the skills and abilities and the, the social environment in which people live and work. Um, and so that includes, you know, I mean, I, I sort of pulled out some key phrases from the, the uh, president's proposal and well, I'll just quickly run through sort of an alphabetical list here. He's got child care, climate change, community violence, elderly care, gender inequities, income inequality, job training, 
pandemic protection, racial injustice, recycling, semiconductors, um, sub-minimum wages, union membership, and workplace safety. And I guess technically I should probably subtract out semiconductors because that kind of fits in with the physical digital infrastructure. But anyway, the, the point being is that the president has this notion that we want to define infrastructure more broadly. But beyond that, um, he wants to sort of redirect the way we use existing infrastructure dollars. I mean, if you think about it in terms of, um, you know, building a road, I mean, the purpose of a road is to go from point A to point B. So that is a physical, technological challenge of how do you get people and goods from one place to another. But what the president is saying, well, but wait a minute. Historically, we build these interstate highways and they take you across the country. But between point A and point B, you have all of these communities. And the decision about where you put a on-ramp and an off-ramp and how many sound barriers you build and all of the other sort of bells and whistles that go along with building a road, that those decisions in the past have historically uh, discriminated or, or overlooked certain communities and certain um, you know, racial and ethnic groups. And so what the president is trying to do is say, look, we need to spend our, our basic physical infrastructure dollars differently than we have in the past, because this is not simply a matter of, you know, getting from point A to point B. It's what happens all along the way as a result of that decision. Given that expanded definition, Tori, it's not surprising that the proposal has gotten some mixed reviews on the Hill. And there have been some proposals to maybe break it up into separate legislative packages to try to get it through. I worry a little bit about the funding on that. Do you think that um, if they did that, they would continue to, to go through with the idea of paying for it? I, 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 from the outset, you know, the President Biden has expressed a desire to work with Republicans and traditionally infrastructure, as we traditionally define it, roads, bridges, air, seaports, as Steve was mentioning, um, has had bipartisan support. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if the administration uh, attempted to split off that part of this bill to try and lure Republican support. The problem we have there, though, is the Biden administration is pretty adamant about paying for any kind of infrastructure with tax increases. And I think we know that Republicans are not real excited about raising taxes, especially rolling back the tax increases that they passed in 2017. So uh, it's quite possible that you know, if, if, if the Biden administration is, is really uh, ginning hard for a bipartisan proposal, at least one bipartisan win before they have to face voters in midterm elections, uh, you know, Democrats then may be convinced to scale down the, the infrastructure or at least split it into smaller pieces. And the, the, the traditional infrastructure piece isn't paid for in order to secure Republican support. Um, only because that's what's called a, a bipartisan victory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and 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 that that is a concern. I, I think that I, there's. Uh, I worry there, about that. 
I worry about that too. Uh, Steve, you raised a, a, a possibility that's even somewhat more insidious on the uh, spending side, on the uh, uh, pay for side, which is another alternative might be to scale back everything they're doing, but not to take anything out, just make it all kind of temporary or short term pay for that. But you've, 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 you've gotten stuff in the budget that would have to be paid for eventually because it would be extended. So maybe you look like you were doing something that was not that expensive, but in fact, it, uh, it could well be. Is that something uh, from your experience that you could see them doing? Well, it, you know, there's an old expression about the camel's nose under the tent. And Congress has a long history of identifying some worthy goal, recognizing that it doesn't have the money to pay for it. So what it does is it says, we're going to try this thing and we're just going to do it for one year. We're just going to do it one time and it's going to be temporary and you know, we're just going to see how it goes. But the idea is that once Congress passes legislation and appropriates money for some worthy goal, you develop a constituency for that goal, whatever it is. And once you've developed a constituency who's going to lobby for that, you know, that purpose to achieve that goal, they're going to keep coming back. And so the idea is, well, now that we've started this program, we can't possibly turn off the spigot and make it go away. So we're going to have to extend it. And so, you know, going back to, you know, I mean, the, the Affordable Care Act, I mean, there were some provisions there where they're going to, you know, they were going to do long-term care insurance and they were going to phase it in and, you know, pay for it. So they would put the money up front and they'd phase in the benefits. So it looked like it was paid for. And so, you know, you have this, you know, process by which, you know, you don't really match up your spending and your revenue and you say, okay, we're going to do this and it's going to cost this much and it's going to go on forever. And we're going to identify a funding source so that everything can be added up in a year by year basis to make sure that it all comes out. Um, that's simply not, you know, arguably that is how things should be done, but that tends not to be how they actually get done. And so, you know, the idea is that instead of doing the big $2.3 trillion package and putting all the money in there for all the years, uh, you know, eight or 10 years, you just do little pieces and you say, it's okay, this is only for one year or two years. But then the hope is once you get it started, no one is going to come back and say, oh, well, we didn't really mean it and we don't want to. That was such a great idea. How could we possibly not continue to do it? And so I think that, you know, there is some danger and some precedent that that is how things have tended to work. Yeah. I, and we've certainly had uh, uh, the experience of disappearing tax cuts that would eventually be extended, too. So we could have a, an interesting year following the appearing and, and disappearing parts of the budget. It's going to be uh, it's going to be uh, really important to keep track of of how all this plays out. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this segment. This is facing the future. I'm your host Bob Bixby, and I've been talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. We've been discussing the latest budget initiatives of the Biden administration. I'll be right back with Richard Jackson to discuss his new paper, The Macro Challenges of Population Aging. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and in this segment, I'll be talking with Richard Jackson the president and founder of the Global Aging Institute. 
Richard is an internationally recognized authority on global aging. Prior to launching GAI, Richard directed a research program on global aging at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And he's the author or co-author of numerous policy studies on global aging, including a joint GAI Concord Coalition issue brief series called The Shape of Things to Come. That explores the fiscal, economic, social, and geopolitical implications of the aging of America. And today we'll be discussing the latest paper in that series called The Macro Challenges of Population Aging. Richard, welcome back to Facing the Future. It's great to be here, Bob. Well, um, you know, when the subject of population aging comes up in policy debates, it's often in the context of the federal budget through its impact on major benefit programs like Social Security and, and Medicare and Medicaid. But population aging is, is having and will have many other consequences for the future that don't get as much attention. And you delve into those consequences in, uh, and some possible solutions in the new paper. So kind of set the stage for us, what, what else can we expect aside from, or in addition to the increased fiscal burdens? Yeah, sure, Bob. I mean, first of all, let me say that the increased fiscal burden is certainly an issue worthy of attention. Nothing to sneeze at. And, no. and that has been the, uh, you know, much of the focus for Concord over the years. But the impact of aging reaches far beyond the federal budget. And and, and, and really promises to transform uh, uh, virtually every dimension of economic and social life over, over the next few decades. Demography may not be destiny, but it really does have profound implications for, for, for the economy. Along with rising fiscal burdens, we face a future of slower economic growth. I mean, what, what's causing the aging of the population? People, the first thing people think of is rising life expectancy, but actually the big quantitative driver um, is declining birth rates. People are having fewer babies. This hollows out the base of the population pyramid. Um, as the base of the population pyramid get, get, gets hollowed out, leaving it top heavy with elders, Fewer kids eventually translates into fewer workers, slower growth in the working age population, and that translates through into slower growth in employment, which is one of the two components of GDP growth. Back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, employment in the United States was growing at about 2% per year. As recently as the 1990s and early 2000s, it was growing at about 1.5% per year. By the 2030s and 2040s, the CBO projects that it'll be, growth will be barely positive, just 0.3% per year. And, and further out, unless birth rates and net immigration increase, uh, it could actually fall to zero or even turn negative. That, all other things being equal, a decline in employment growth will translate into a decline in GDP growth. Now, it's in theory, it's possible that faster productivity growth, that's the other component of GDP growth, could offset slower employment growth. But in fact, 
productivity is more likely to fall than to rise in aging societies. Why? Because the workforce will not only be growing more slowly, it will also be aging. But older workers add tremendous value to the economy, but they're not perfect substitutes for younger workers. An aging workforce may be less mobile, it may be uh, less innovative, it may be less entrepreneurial. So the workforce is aging. Investment rates will also be falling, if only because a more slowly growing workforce and economy doesn't need as much aggregate investment to maintain a constant growth rate in the capital per worker capital stock. Less aggregate investment means a slower turnover in the capital stock and less opportunity for what is sometimes called learning by doing. If investment rates fall, innovation may fall. There there are other reasons to suspect that productivity growth uh, uh, may decline in aging societies as well. Slowly growing um, domestic markets could lead to increased capital, uh, sorry, increased protectionist pressure uh, for anti-competitive measures that protect jobs and protect market share. And to loop back to where we started with uh, the fiscal outlook, if the federal government continues to do what it has been doing to pay for old age benefits, which is to crowd other spending, allow the growth in old age benefits to crowd other spending out of public public budgets. We could see declines in public investment, which could have a negative feedback on economic growth. Or the other thing that we've been doing to pay for uh, the rising cost of old age benefits is run widening budget deficits that could crowd private investment out of private capital markets. So the, the, the fiscal challenge is, is the most obvious challenge, but even if we were to solve the fiscal challenge magically overnight, um, control healthcare cost growth, uh, somehow limit uh, the increase in social security spending, um, we would still face this broader economic challenge, which is one of slower growth uh, in the overall economy and possibly slower growth in productivity, which would mean slower growth in living standards as well. If in a, an aging society, you might, some people might assume that you'd be spending less on children than you would in a much younger society, and perhaps that would allow greater resources to be spent uh, without having an, some of the effects that you're talking about. Could, could you address that uh, issue? Yeah, I mean, it, it so, sort of seems like a plausible notion. Uh, that there might be some some offset. I mean, the ratio of, it's called the old age dependency ratio of elderly to working age adults will be increasing over the next few decades, has been increasing and will continue to increase. While the youth or child dependency ratio of people under age 20, let's say, to working age adults has been declining. But Uh, the projected increase in the old age dependency ratio was much greater than the projected decline in the child dependency ratio. Um, And critically, uh, the United States, like other developed countries, has also socialized the cost of supporting the elderly. Uh, Socialized meaning we pay for it collectively through public budgets to a much greater extent 
uh, then we've socialized the cost of supporting children. At the federal level, the ratio of per capita benefit spending on the elderly to per capita benefit spending on children is about six to one overall, including it, it nationally, including state and local spending. Um, it's still well over two to one. Finally, um, the whole notion that less, relatively less, we're going to be spending more on kids in any case. We're talking about relatively less spending um, or relatively less spending growth. The whole notion that less spending on kids, which is by and large investment, right, in, in, in education, et cetera, that will bear economic returns over time, somehow offsets more spending on the elderly, which is mostly consumption seems a little bit misguided. In terms of talking about investing in the future and the future that's supposed to be able to bear the increased burdens of, of a, a higher fiscal um, take yeah. on, you know, from those. So it's... I mean, if anything, an aging society needs to spend more on children. Right. right as an investment. In order to afford. Yeah. It's, 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 it's aging. Yeah. It's... Uh, Congratulations, kids. You get a, a bigger fiscal burden and we're not investing very much in, in your futures. So <laughs> right. right. That's the uh, problem. This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby and I'm talking with Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute, about his new paper, The Macro Challenges of Population Aging. There are there are some other consequences that you talk about in the paper as well that are even less appreciated, I think, or even even discussed than, than the economic, potential economic effects. You talk about social moods and also geopolitical consequences. And I think it's worth touching on those as well before we look at some potential policy ideas or solutions. Yeah, sure. Look, America's always been a demographically youthful society. Oscar Wilde once quipped that that America's youth is its oldest tradition. Um, you know, as recently as the 1940s, this is kind of incredible when you think about it, as recently as the 1940s, there were more college age, college age youth, that is 18 plus 19 plus 20 plus 21 year olds. There were more youth in that four year age bracket than there were elderly age 65 and over. Today, there are three times as many elderly as there are college-age youth, and by 2050, there'll be at least five times as many. It, it's fair to speculate that that might have uh, an impact on the social mood. We know that risk aversion and time horizons change over the course of the individual life cycle, right? Yeah, sure, we know some risk-taking 80-year-old entrepreneurs, and, and, and we know some, you know, so, so some highly risk-averse 20-year-olds, but on average, people become more risk-averse and have shorter, and, and that's because they have shorter time horizons, right? The less time you have left, uh, the less time you have to make good on, uh, to enjoy the risky bets that go your way or to recoup the losses from the risky bets that don't. So it, 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 analogously, at the society-wide level, we, we may see a social mood that becomes 
uh, more risk averse, more small C conservative. We may see aging electorates locking in current spending commitments at the expense of new investments in the future and, and so forth. There, there is a large statistical literature which shows convincingly that extremely youthful societies are often dysfunctional. They're, they're prone to civil unrest, state failure. This is a big problem in parts of the uh, developing world still, still today. We don't have examples, historical examples of societies where a third of the population is elderly to run our regressions on, but it's fair to speculate that they may be dysfunctional in some ways too, favoring consumption over investment and the past over the future. Yeah, and I mean, that's, uh, that's an interesting point that there's really not a historical precedent to, to look at, but I mean, you can, you can see it in, in the, um, certainly the political behavior about Social Security and Medicare, um, it's, uh, it's already for years been called the third rail of American politics. And one can imagine that phenomenon becoming even more entrenched as the baby boomers age into our retirement years and uh, become it's ever a more narrower dependent. and narrower slice of the budget that's left over for anything we could call investment in the future. And what about the, the geopolitical concerns that you write about? We just touch on that in, in the paper, but it's, it, it's worth a mention here. Well, look, population size uh, alone obviously doesn't confer geopolitical stature, but population size and economic size together are powerful, potent twin engines of national power. They obviously affect the hard power of, of national defense, but they may also affect uh, a soft power, which is the ability of a country to cause other countries to, to, to want to emulate them, if, if, if you will. They affect soft power because ultimately soft power too flows from things like your clout and multilaterals, your global business presence, all of which also ultimately, at least to some extent, depends on population size and, and, and economic size. And there are plenty of examples in in history of relatively small countries. We can go back to the ancient world and, and Athens or, or um, you know, the age of exploration in Portugal or, or, or the, the Netherlands or England, relatively small countries that have exercised disproportionate geopolitical sway. But all of these countries, and this is something we often forget, were demographically growing and economically growing relative to their neighbors and relative to the rest of the world during their period of geopolitical rise. There are no examples historically that I can think of of demographically and economically contracting powers that were also rising geopolitical powers. Let's turn to some potential solutions. This is, doesn't seem like an easy fix because we are talking about things that are ingrained and ongoing and you know, baked into the cake to a certain extent. So uh, solution by solutions, I mean sort of very broad policy themes of what types of things could the politicians be thinking about that could ameliorate or mitigate some of these circumstances. Right. Yeah, I mean, we're, 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 not, we're, not, we're not helpless in the face of demographic change. 
And, and the impact of demographic change on the economy and society doesn't happen overnight. It, it accumulates slowly over time. And there are important steps that we can take. And I, I classify them, and I put them in two bins, maybe, or, or maybe three bins. The first bin is to limit the extent of population aging itself. You know, until recently, the concerns about economic growth, social mood and geopolitical stature that I've mentioned were not as grave as they appear today. And that was because for several decades, the United States was really an outlier in the developed world. Yeah, we were aging and, and, and yeah, the baby boom was going to accelerate that aging, but we had a fertility rate that was up at the replacement level needed to maintain a stable population. And we had substantial net immigration. But since the Great Recession, birth rates have fallen, are now at record historical lows, net immigration has fallen, and the US, unless these come back up, is gonna age a lot more than the official projections by the Census Bureau or the Social Security Administration or the CBO project. So step, the first set of reforms is to limit the extent of population. We may be able to bring birth rates back up again if we institute policies that alleviate the costs of child rearing and make it easier for families to balance family and, and job responsibilities. That's all become a lot harder for millennials than it was for Xers or boomers at the same age. Whether we can bring back up the birth rate or not to replacement levels, it's iffy, but it's certainly worth to try for a lot of reasons. A surer way to do that would be to increase net immigration, which has at the margin tremendous benefits for an aging society. Uh, so that, that, that's the first set. The second set, and, and the word you used was perfect, mitigate, right, for any given level of population aging, to mitigate the demographic drag on economic growth. We can increase labor force participation, uh, especially among the elderly, who are not only America's fastest growth, the fastest growing segment of the population, but the largest underutilized human capital resource we have. Prior to the pandemic, elderly labor force participation was rising. Coming out of the pandemic, government needs to do, public policy needs to do whatever it can to encourage that positive development. We can resist protectionist pressure. An aging world needs open global capital markets and open global labor markets to match workers with job opportunities, to match savings with investment opportunities. It becomes more important, not less important. We're shooting ourselves in the foot if we shut the door to globalization. And, and, and so mitigate the demographic drag on economic growth. And yes, to bring it back full circle, mitigate the demographic pressure on government budgets. And that means above all, grappling with healthcare reform because that's the most explosive driver of rising old age benefit spending, which is in turn what's at the root of our structural budget deficits, COVID-related spending entirely aside. This is Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Richard, thanks for joining the show. And to our audience, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week on Facing the Future.